Picture with me for just a moment a few scenes from the Gospels. One, the disciples are in a boat. A storm is about to swamp the boat, and Jesus is sleeping in the aft. And you know what they do? They come to him anxiously and nervously, and they say, don't you care? Don't you care that we are about to perish? And what did Jesus say? He said, oh, ye of little faith, why are you so afraid? And then he stood up and he said three words, well, three words in English, quiet, be still. And the wind and the waves calmed down and they were amazed, actually fearful. And they asked, who is this man? that even the winds and the waves obey him. Shift to another scene on the sea. They're in a boat again, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And Peter looks out and asks if the Lord will beckon him to come to him, and Jesus does, and Peter steps out in faith. And you know what happened. Then he looked at the wind. How do you look at the wind? He looked at the wind-tossed waves, And what happened? He began to sink because he doubted. And Jesus, after he rescued him, as he was rescuing him, he said, Oh, ye of what? Little faith. Why did you doubt? Jesus has fed the 5,000 and he has fed the 4,000. And after the feeding of the 4,000, the disciples forgot to bring the bread in the boat. They had only one loaf. And Jesus said to them, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to debate. They began to worry. They began to be fretted because they had no bread. And they were talking about their worry over the bread. And Jesus looked at them and said, Oh, ye of little faith, why do you worry about the bread? Don't you remember what I did with the 4,000 and the 5,000? Last scene. Jesus is preaching in the book of Luke, one of the passages from the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about provision, about what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, why do you worry, O ye of little faith? You know what you need to do? You need to seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be given to you. You know, several times, there's another instant we'll mention in a moment, where Jesus mildly reprimands them for their little faith. There were only two people in the Gospels that Jesus commended for having great faith, and they were not Jews. One of them was a Roman. He was a centurion in Capernaum, and he asked for Jesus to heal his servant, and you know the story. Jesus said that he was going to go to the servant, and the centurion said, no need to do that. I am a military man. I command people to do such and such, and they do it. I command my servants at the house to do this, and my servant does it. You just say the word, and it will be done. And Jesus then said, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And then Jesus healed the servant from afar. And the other was as Jesus was in the vicinity of Tyre, he was in Syrophoenicia, and the Canaanite woman came and asked for Jesus then to exorcise, to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And he didn't do so at first. He said that he had come to the house of Israel first, and she beseeched him again, and then she started beseeching the disciples, and they were pestered, and they told Jesus that he ought to send her away. And she begged one more time. 
And Jesus then, in one of the accounts, says, because of your great faith, because of your great faith, I will heal her. And he did. Isn't it interesting? It's when he goes to the Canaanite territory and when he ministers to a Roman soldier that he witnesses great faith. You know, the passage that we deal with today talks about really absolute certainty and believing with absolute certainty. Yes, Sally Ann, you aren't going to get all the candy bars. That's true. Believing with absolute certainty, without any doubt whatsoever. The problem is, folks, most of the time we cannot do that. This is partly built into what some call the prosperity gospel today. If you only believe strongly enough, God will answer your prayer. That mother of yours that is ill, if you just believe strongly enough, she will be healed. That child of yours who has childhood cancer and the treatments are not working, if you just believe strongly enough, that child will be healed. The problem is, folks, it doesn't work that way. We believe that God can heal, yes, but we're uncertain that he will do so if we're really honest with ourselves. We fervently hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. We fervently hope that God might heal, and we try to convince ourselves that he will do so. But folks, there's always a lingering, niggling little doubt in the back of our mind. I would suggest to you this morning that it's not a matter of the size of our faith, whether it's great or small. I would suggest to you that it's not the matter of intensity of our faith that really matters. It's really a different thing, as we see from this story. It's actually how well we know the object of our faith. And the object is really the subject of our faith. How well do we know God, and how clearly do we understand His will? Be still, my soul. Your God will undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Be still, my soul. Your hope, your confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them when he lived below. Be still, my soul. But folks, our souls are not always still. You know, the background for today's story, you can go back a little bit before the triumphal entry, and the story then comes after the triumphal entry. The disciples have experienced the euphoria and the high of witnessing the transfiguration, some of them, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then they go into the valley of despond and despair when Jesus, not long after that, announces that he is going to Jerusalem to be beaten and to suffer and to die and to be resurrected. But I think they focus on that first part. They've experienced the euphoria of coming out of Jerusalem with a clamoring and shouting crowds and then entering Jerusalem on what we call the triumphal entry on Sunday. Once again, jubilant and euphoric and on a high. And by that evening, they're returning alone with Jesus to Bethany. It's quieted down. 
And we know those crowds that are proclaiming him as the new David before the end of the week will be calling for his death. The next day then, he leaves Bethany, probably staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, I should imagine. He leaves Bethany, and then he's hungry. And you know the story. And he sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf, and he goes to it to see if he might get some food. And when he arrives, he sees nothing but leaves. And then he says to the fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And Mark then parenthetically says, and his disciples heard him say it. Hmm. You know, Bethany is about a mile and a half from the center of Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day journey on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, the backside of Jerusalem. And the word means house of what? House of figs. You see, it was a, a place well known for its fig trees, a reliable source of food. The problem is this is an awkward time of year. Fresh food is hard to come by. The barley and the wheat harvest have just been brought in. But you see, they cannot eat of that new harvest until it has been offered on the day after the Sabbath at the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And that is six days hence. Actually, it's the day of the resurrection. There's a food all around them, but they can't eat much of it. There is abundant and plentiful source of food on the trees. The figs on the backside of the mountain and Bethphage, which means the house of new figs, and Bethany, the house of figs. The olive groves on the Mount of Olives on the other slope facing Jerusalem. And the vineyards that are plentiful in the Judean countryside and the hillsides. But you see, all of this tree fruit is out of season. This is March, April. Olives are not harvested until October and then every other year. Grapes are not harvested until September. And the fig trees, there are three different kinds of harvest season. One is the summer fruit, the kermus, that is harvested in August. Well, a little earlier than that, there's the shakura fruit, which is the early ripe fruit that is harvested in June, but yet it is not ready. And then there's the pog. There is the winter fig, the early, the early winter fig, the untimely fig. It ripens in the late spring, can find it in some sheltered and isolated places, maybe near Bethphage, because that's what the word means, the house of the unripe figs. And that's probably what Jesus expected to find, or it could have been what they call the early figs, the taksh. The early figs are edible knobs that are on the fig tree, and they appear with the first bloom, and then they drop off before the fig comes. And if, if those edible knobs are not there, the fig tree will not bear figs that year. And that's probably what Jesus saw when he arrived. Nothing but leaves. So what happens then after that on Monday, the second day, as he goes into Jerusalem, after he, some say cursed, I will say blighted the fig tree. Jesus, we know, cleansed the temple of the money changers. He taught and he healed, and the children then proclaim Hosanna, and he rebukes the chief priests and the religious leaders for trying to silence the children. And then he continues to run into opposition from the chief priests who seek to destroy him. And that evening he returned to Bethany, the house of figs. On Tuesday, the next day, the third day then that he has been in the vicinity of Jerusalem, 
This is the longest day of Jesus' ministry recorded in the book of Mark. In fact, it's his last day of public ministry, and he's going to face opposition after opposition after opposition. He goes into the temple, and they challenge his authority. And he responds when they ask, by what authority are you doing these things? He said, well, you tell me. You answer my question. John's baptism, who gave him the authority to do that? Did it come from God in heaven, or did it come from men? And he silenced them. He gave the parable of the wicked tenants, and the Pharisees knew that he was speaking about them. And the Pharisees and the Herodians then challenge him about taxation. And the Sadducees question him and try to put him on the horns of a dilemma about the resurrection. And then a scribe, a, a lawyer, comes and tests him by asking what is the greatest commandment. He confronts the religious leaders about his divinity as the Christ, and he warns his disciples not to follow the scribes because of their corruption and their pride. And then he even dares to predict that the temple will be destroyed. This is a tough day ahead for Jesus. The longest recorded day of ministry in the Gospel of Mark. In the morning, at the beginning of this day, we know what happened. Jesus made his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, and in Mark, the 11th chapter, it tells us a brief story. Beginning in verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up, completely withered. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed, it, it's withered. And you might expect Jesus then to give some commentary about the withering of the tree, but he doesn't. It seems like he shifts gears completely to another topic, but it isn't. It fits. And in verse 22, And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. The parallel passage for this is found in Matthew, the 21st chapter, but there are several similar passages that bear upon the interpretation today. In Matthew, the 17th chapter, much earlier, he has talked about the mountain being cast into the sea. And this is the background of the other passage, the fifth passage, where Jesus comments on their little faith. It's after the man with a demon-possessed boy, the disciples cannot cure his son. And Jesus does, even though the father has fairly weak faith, he admits it. And they ask him, the disciples later, why could we not do this? And he says, because of the littleness of your faith. You see, this kind can come out, one passage in Mark says, through prayer. Matthew adds, this can come out only with much prayer and fasting. You see, if you had the faith only as a mustard seed, tiny little seed, it's not a matter, folks, of how great or how small it is. It's not a matter of the intensity and the fervency of our faith. If you have only the faith like a mustard seed, you see, you could command this mountain to be lifted up and to be cast into the sea, and it would obey you because, you see, nothing is impossible for God. Another passage out of Luke's gospel is about the mulberry tree. 
being cast into the sea. When the disciples asked Jesus, would you increase our faith? We've got a little faith. Would you increase our faith? He tells them, if you only had the faith as a mustard seed, you could tell this tree, this mulberry tree, this fig-like tree to pick itself up and be replanted into the sea and it would obey you. I'm not so sure it's a matter of size and intensity, folks. There are a couple of fig tree passages that bear on the story today. One of them out of Luke, the 13th chapter. It's about the unproductive fig tree. You remember Jesus' parable. There is a man who owns a vineyard with fig trees in it, and there is a keeper of, the, of fig trees. And the master comes and tell him, tells him, that tree has not produced for three years. Cut it down and burn it. Destroy it. But the keeper of the vineyard, of the uh, fig tree, orchard, I guess we would call it, then begs the master and says, no, give it another chance. Let, let me tend it. Let me dig around the soil. Let me fertilize it. And let's give it another year. And the master apparently lets him do so. And there's another fig tree passage that bears on today's interpretation. And it comes a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24. It's in Mark, the 13th chapter, when Jesus is talking about the end times and the disciples have asked him to tell them what they're going to be like. He comes to the near, near to the end of that passage talking about all the things that are going to happen at the end times. And he says, now remember, here's a parable to remember. Remember the parable of the fig tree. You see, when it blooms, summer is about here. And that fits with what we just said earlier, the, the June harvest. And when that happens, you will know that the Son of Man is about ready to come and that the harvest is imminent. Two other passages. One is about unproductive trees. Do you remember what John said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees to bear fruit consistent with repentance? For the axe is at the root of the tree, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be what? Cut down and burned. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says the same thing about false prophets. You see, they are like trees with bad fruit. And trees with bad fruit are cut down and they are burned. And of course, Jesus in John, the 15th chapter, talks about the branch the branches of the vine. And he says, those that abide in the vine bear much fruit, but those that do not abide in the vine, they do what? They're cut off, they are thrown away, they dry up, they're dried up, and they, they're burned. Those passages, I think, are pertinent, but this passage is not about productivity and unproductivity. Unproduct the focus of this passage today is about faith and about faithfulness. What's the nature of this miracle? Some people say that Jesus was petulant, that he was uncompassionate, that he was unnecessarily severe with a fig tree. I don't think that the fig tree really knew enough to care whether Jesus was severe or not. The interpreter's Bible even goes so far as to say that this action by Jesus was unworthy, an unworthy act by any religious leader of any age. I disagree. I think that the commentator doesn't get the point. No, there were many times when Jesus was firm, when Jesus was severe, and Jesus even spoke in, in overstatements and hyperboles. And when he did so, he was trying to make a teaching point that was very important for his disciples. So, for example, he says to them, don't think that I have come to bring peace on earth. Well, we know he did, but he's making the point. He also comes to bring a what? A sword to divide believers from unbelievers. 
He says to his disciples in one passage that we ought to hate our father and our mother and the rest of our family, but he doesn't mean really hate them. What he means is whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You see, he sometimes speaks in severe terms. With the Syrophoenician woman, we, we see that at first he did not then comply with her request. We, we see with the rich young ruler, no matter how sad, no, no matter what downcast countenance the rich young ruler put on his face, Jesus did not relent. He let him go away sad. He was making a point. Possessions can be and often are stumbling blocks to entering the kingdom of God. Sometimes Jesus was severe and firm for a purpose to teach. This miracle is unlike most that Jesus performed. Most of the other miracles that Jesus performed, there was some kind of benefit then that came upon those that were the objects of the the miracle. That's not the case here. This, in fact, is a a parable. It is a miracle that is used to teach, a parabolic act, to demonstrate an important teaching point. He did it a couple of other times. When he was walking on the water, for example, he frightened his disciples, but then that gave him the opportunity to come close to them and to remind them that they need not fear that he was present. When he tells Peter to go and to take the coin, to go and find the fish and take the coin out of the fish's mouth, that's a teaching point. You must pay the temple tax and obey the authorities, but you know this, God will provide. It's this kind of miracle that Jesus is performing, and sometimes it's wrongly interpreted. One wrong interpretation Sally Ann told us about this morning, along with Joe. Well, Joe told Sally Ann, and that is, if we just believe hard enough, if, if, if our faith is just intense enough, and if it's big enough, you see, we can do anything. And that's not the point. Another interpretation is rather prophetic, and it's allegorical. Some people see the fig tree as Israel being unfaithful and rejecting him. You see, the season of that fig tree in the parable of Luke 13 has come to an end, and it is not productive. And now the keeper, the master of the garden, is pronouncing the fate upon the fig tree. The mountain is Israel, according to this interpretation, and it will be cast into the sea. It will be cast among the other nations and be lost. Oh, but there's hope. There's hope. Because later in Matthew 24, you see, he uses a fig tree as an example of the blooming that is a forecast of Christ's return, that Israel someday will be restored. The problem, folks, with this interpretation is Jesus never connected those dots. You have to take passages from Matthew and Luke and put them together with other passages from from, uh, Luke and Mark, and you have to allegorize. You see, this is making the fig tree an allegory, and that's not Jesus' point. No, his point is very clear. He's demonstrating this point. It is the power of knowing and trusting the Father, and that is what matters. It's very straightforward. So what is the point of this miracle today? I think one is we must have faith in God. Two, with God, nothing is impossible. That is true. Number three, we are to believe without doubting. And then finally, we are to pray with full confidence in God. Have faith in God. Actually, it literally means have the faith of God. This is very similar to the passages that Paul uses in Romans, Galatians, and Philippians, where he talks about having faith in Christ, which is actually interpreted as the faith of Christ. 
We are to have not only faith in God and faith in Christ, but we are to have the supernatural gift of God's faith to those who seek Him. When we seek Him, God does something to us. He gives us a supernatural capacity to believe, because it comes from Him, that transforms our human weak faith, our human capacity to believe God, and it leads to a deeper faith in Him. It's not blind faith. It's not that somehow we choose to believe this and think it will happen because we think it's right. It's not because we think that God wants to do something impossible through us and we expect God to validate whatever we're doing on His behalf. It's not that kind of blind faith. No, this, this is confident faith. It, it's a radical faith in God's intentions that He reveals to us. It's a faith that somehow has gotten an insight into knowing what God's purpose and plan is. And and having that insight about what God intends to do gives us confidence in Him, not us. It's not our faith, it's His faith in us. Look at the faith of Christ. Christ was the same way, the faith of Christ. What do we mean when we say that? He did only what He saw His Father doing. Not just what he wanted to do. He could do nothing apart from what the Father empowered him to do. Not in his own power alone. And if it was the same with, if it was that way with him, it should be the same with us. You see, those miracles that Jesus did proved this point. That he was relying on the Father every step of the way. And that his message was from God. This first point about having faith in God, having the faith of God, is I think very simple. This isn't about performing miracles, folks. It's about daily faith. It's about walking with God and trusting Him in everything that we do. A second point is that all things, and we know this, are possible with God. Casting mountains into the sea, it's possible to happen. This illustrates what Jesus has already said. Remember what He said after the disciples could not heal the demon-possessed boy. He said, if you only have the faith of a mustard seed, you can tell the mountain to go into the sea and it'll obey you. So it demonstrates this point. God has done that before. He stopped the Jordan River, not in the sea, but the river by doing what? By causing then at the town of Adam upstream, he caused the mountains to crumble into the river. He's done it before. He can do it again. This mountains being cast into the sea really is a biblical metaphor about the ultimate destruction of the world. The psalmist tells us, Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, and we know that that's going to happen someday, because Peter tells us in his second letter, that someday all of creation is going to be like that. It is going to be destroyed by fervent heat. This mountains falling into the sea is a prediction about the coming end time. Jesus is making a point there. Remember, Jesus was speaking in hyperbole. Does God ever expect you to command mountains to go into the sea? Well, if it serves His purpose, yes, but that's very unlikely. The point is, when He commands us to do something, He expects us to do it, even though it seems impossible. 
And regardless of the ridicule that we will receive from others. I know the Bible doesn't say it explicitly, but I do think that when Noah was building the ark for all those years, there were people that thought he was silly, he was insane, and they ridiculed him. Yet he continued to do it because why? Not because he had some vision, not because he thought there was going to be a flood, not just because he invented this idea, because God told him, and he knew that was God's intention. You see, all things are possible for God, but not everything accomplishes his will. So he only commands things for us to do that are according to his will and for our own good. You know, there are a couple of other passages that give us assurances that this is true. In John 14, you know, it's after... He talks about the Father's house. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Asking in Jesus' name. And you know, there's some people that make this in kind of a mantra. I will always pray in Jesus' name because if I don't pray in Jesus' name, my prayer will not be honored. That's not the point. There's another passage that confirms this, that God can do the impossible. First John tells us, This is the confidence you see that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we will have the request which we have asked from him. So the principles there are very clear. God will do whatever we ask under these conditions. Number one, We legitimately claim the name of Jesus. And what I mean by that is, it is something that Jesus would do. Secondly, if it glorifies the Father, just as we heard from the skit this morning. And finally, if it accomplishes God's will. God can do the impossible and will. Thirdly, we're to believe without doubting. Effective faith is pure. It's undiluted trust in God. We're expected to exhibit doubtless faith, that we rely and believe totally in God doing something. It must be pure and it must be unwavering. We must not be the doubtful man that is tossed by the sea, you see, by the wind over the sea. This is what happened to Peter. He stepped out confidently, but then when he took his eyes off Jesus, what happened? He began to waver. We're expected to have unwavering doubt. There's a problem here, folks. We're not capable of that. You and your power and I and my power are not capable of unwavering doubt. Doubtless faith is impossible for human nature. Time after time after time, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you have little faith five times. There's something psychological about this, I think, and it's part of our human nature. You see, we will always doubt and we will always falter if we're true to our conscience, if we think that our faith alone can move mountains. If I decide this afternoon there's something that I should do and I do it in my own power, in my own will, in my own faith, and it seems to be impossible, no matter how much I pluck up my faith courage, something way in the back of my mind and my conscience tells me I'm bound to fail. Doubt begins to creep in. Doubt disappears only when we're convinced absolutely that God wants to do it and he will accomplish it. You see, this faith, friends, is not a matter of human willpower. We cannot manufacture that kind of faith. 
If we're uncertain that God is telling us to do something, no matter how much we try to convince ourselves, we know that we will fail. No, it must go back to the first point that I made about having faith in God. It must be Christ's faith that is implanted in us. A pure faith that comes from Christ, that discerns the will of God clearly, and it instills in us the courage to do what God tells us to do. This pure faith not only comes from Christ, but it grows in two ways. It grows by walking with Christ as he shows us, as he did with the fig tree, what is impossible that God can do through us. It comes from walking with Christ, but it also comes from seeking the Father's vision. When we seek the Father's vision and he begins to reveal it to us, then our faith is illuminated by his will. And that's different than human faith. And this grows our faith. And it grows it to the point that when we're convinced that God really, really wants to do something, our, ver- our faith is irreversibly resolute. We become certain that God is telling us to do it. And then we can persevere. It's like Abraham when he's walking up the mountain with Isaac. He has faith in God that God is going to do what? To provide. That gave him the courage to ascend the mountain. It's like David when he goes to face Goliath. Who is this giant? Who is this Philistine who dares to defy the God who is the commander of hosts? He knew that God was with him, and he knew that God was calling him to slay the giant. It's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing the fiery furnace. We know that our God can deliver us, but we also know if He doesn't that it is His will. You see, when we know to the best of our ability what God is telling us to do, His faith, our faith is illuminated by His will. This is about being in line with God's will. The purpose is not, folks, for us to do mighty miracles, great miracles. It's so that we might do the will of the Father and He might be glorified. Many of the things that we do every day are not miracles, but He is glorified. His Word is proclaimed, but sometimes He uses us in mighty and miraculous ways to accomplish His will so He can be glorified, and we better be sure when that happens that we give Him the credit. You see, some things that He commands us to do are beyond our ability. Yes, Hmm. they seem that way, and they are. The key is knowing what things God is calling us to do and which He's not. The point is not about doing miracles and bizarre things like withering fig trees. The point is we must have the courage to do whatever God commands. The ultimate purpose is very simply this, folks. God calls us to walk humbly and closely with Him, fully trusting Him every moment of the day. As we have prayed for our young men today, trust the Lord with what? All your heart. Don't lean on your what? own understanding. In every way, in every step of your way, acknowledge Him. Seek His will, and He'll direct your paths. And the final point is this. Pray with full confidence in God. You see, talking with God gives us confidence, doesn't it? We pray and we listen to what He tells us. But you know what, folks? As we do that, are we really listening to God? We pray and we listen to God and we expect Him to tell us what to do. And and through that, we discover His will and He assures us of what we should do. 
And prayer then brings divine reason. It, it, it brings his reason into our life for doing the things that we do. And now that's great. There's just one problem, folks. Just as our faith, our human faith is inadequate, sometimes our prayers are too. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. What's the solution? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 8, when we don't know how to pray, we don't even know how to ask. We don't even know how to listen. We don't even understand the will of God. The Holy Spirit then intercedes, and he communicates in ways that we cannot comprehend. And the scripture tells us in Romans 8, then what happens as the Holy Spirit communes with the Father through the Son, Christ searches our hearts, he searches our intents, and he knows the mind of the Spirit, and he intercedes for the saints, for us, according to the will of God. So this thing about prayer, when he says, when you pray, believing, he's talking about that kind of prayer. He's talking about the prayer that is Holy Spirit anointed, that seeks to discover God's will. And folks, it's not always quick. It's not always fast. It doesn't always come in a flash. Sometimes, it is, as it says in Matthew, this kind comes out only through much prayer and what? Much prayer and what? Fasting as well. So what are the observations I'd make in conclusion? I'd say these four things very briefly. Number one, here we are called to receive the faith of God and the faith of Christ to strengthen our faith in the Lord. Secondly, we must know, be knowledgeable and understand God's word and his promises and his plan of redemption. So we receive the faith of God and we know his word. We perceive then God's will and we grow in faith. Perceiving God's will and discerning His will comes through spirit-assisted prayer and fasting and walking with Jesus every step of the way as He shows us the Father's will. And if we do that, we will grow through the exercising of our faith. You know, faith is a spiritual muscle that exercises our hope in God. Faith is the spiritual muscle that we have that exercises our hope in God to glorify Him. And through that, God strengthens and he purifies our faith as he puts it to the test of obedience. Let me close with this question. Has God ever asked you to do something that seemed to be impossible? Did you obey? Gamble Street Baptist Church, has it ever come to crossroads where the way forward seemed to be impossible, but God asked Gamble Street Baptist Church to do what seemed to be impossible? I guarantee you that has happened many times. And God's people have responded, not just to demonstrate some miraculous power of God, but to glorify God and to do His will, convinced that this is the pathway forward. I would ask you as you leave here today, graduates, as you face the rest of your life, there will come a point when you come to a crossroad and God says, this may seem to men and women to be impossible, but I'm calling you to do it. If he's never done that, folks, that may be an indictment on our faith. Maybe he doesn't trust us enough to reveal his will to us. 
Maybe we are too weak and a little of faith. But remember, all it takes is faith, like a what? A mustard seed nurtured by the will and the power of God and the living water of Jesus Christ that blooms and grows from the smallest of all seeds to the greatest of all garden plants. God may call you to do something that is impossible. And I believe this, God is in the future calling Gambrel Street to do impossibly wonderful things for God. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, strengthen our faith. Strengthen our vision for understanding what your will is. As we walk with Christ each day, as he shows us those things which you want us to do, may it be not about performing mighty and bizarre things. May it be about accomplishing your will so that you might be glorified and so that Jesus Christ's good news might be proclaimed throughout the world. In his name we pray. Amen.